Heavenly Father, there is nothing that I could say in my strength that could change a single person. There is nothing that I can do to bring about change, growth, or salvation. Even the Apostle Paul says, one plants and other waters, but only God brings the growth. Lord, we pray and ask that you would bring growth through our time together as we look to your word, that we would see you in this time, not the messenger through whom you bring your message. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that we might be transformed by it, that we might behold our God, that we might have a desperate burden for those around us who don't yet know Jesus. And Lord, as we behold our God, may we be transformed from glory to glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you who are a bit stressed, particularly blokes who haven't bought anything for Christmas yet, I'm going to let you know that it's not that far till 2022. You know that time when you get towards the end of the year and people start making these things they call New Year's resolutions, whether you do make them or not. Some people do. And you know what the best thing about New Year's resolutions are? They are so easy to make them. Making a New Year's resolution is easy. Keeping them, it's not always as easy. I mean, after all, how easy it is to talk about some future goals that you have when they are indeed future and also when you're speaking at a time when you're under absolutely no pressure in any way that would hinder those goals. It's not uncommon that someone will make big plans for their health. It seems so easy until they realise, actually, I've got to be a fair bit of stress on my time. Where have I got time to fit in the means that I was going to do these things, to go to the gym or to get exercised by some other means? Well, that was all before they went and built the world's best burger joint right outside my house or near where I work. That didn't happen near my house, if you're wondering. There's no burger joints in, in our street. In this passage, the disciples make some pretty bold claims. They make some pretty bold things. No way would I ever do this. Yet when the pressure comes, those bold claims come undone, not in a matter of days, in a matter of hours. This is the, this is the ones who have been closest to Jesus, that Jesus called to himself, the ones that he called the apostles. Yet for our benefit, we get to see them. These whom we look up to in all of their weaknesses and all of their faults. And we see the grace of Jesus who never casts them aside, never regrets calling them to himself. So to take the common image you see put on social media, the how I thought something was and how it's actually going. Maybe you might think about how you imagined your Christian life would pan out and then the picture of how it's currently going might not be exactly the way that you pictured it. Might find it a little bit discouraging to think about it. My prayer is that you might be encouraged 
to know that you are not alone in your weakness. You have good company even with the apostles in your weakness. But neither are you alone in having a gracious and dependable saviour as well as a body who desire to see you grow and built up. So as we work our way through these verses, we're going to look at three headings that present two opposite perspectives that kind of don't belong together. Yet in our weakness, we'll notice that we tend to vacillate a little bit between each of those. Between pride and humility in verses 26 to 31. Between faithfulness and sleepiness in 32 to 42. Between kingdom and isolation. But we're reminded we weren't given a spirit of fear. We weren't given a spirit of timidity or cowardice, but a spirit of power, love and self-control. So it seems fitting that we can conclude with some of the words of Jesus in this passage, the spirit is willing. So first, as we look at verses 26 to 31, pride and humility. Last week we saw Jesus announce that one of the very twelve would betray him. And it sent shockwaves through the disciples. Every single one of them asked the question, is it I? Which tells us two things. It tells us that there was nothing about Judas that made them all point their fingers and say, oh, it's him. Look how dodgy that guy is. He, on the external, looked just as good and the same as every single one of the other 12. But it also reveals that every single one of the disciples were aware that deep within their heart had the capacity for every form of evil that that claim of Jesus could actually apply to them. Now, even though Judas left during the meal, according to John 13, the disciples didn't know why, actually. They still thought good intentions. They think maybe he's going to go, going to go get some resources or something. Maybe he's going to go do something with the money. But they still haven't had their fears relieved with regards to the question, could it possibly be I that would betray Jesus? Now this Passover celebration concludes with the, with the 11 now singing a hymn. And for those who love their hymns, they think, ah, see, look at that, Jesus and the disciples, they sing hymns, they didn't sing choruses. It wasn't even one of those hymns with the, with the Chris Tomlin extra chorus chucked in. No, we sing psalms and spirit. Hymns and spiritual songs, it's all good. I was just having a joke there. But the abandonment of Jesus wasn't going to get restricted just to one. As Jesus continues in verses 27 to 28, he said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So after three years, Jesus has chosen these men. They have been with him. He's called them his, his apostles. He sent them out in ministry. They've been privileged to see and experience things that the rest of the world had not seen. And Jesus says, you all will fall away. Not only because of their human weakness and their fears that the circumstances will come their way, but he says, because... It is written. 
Now, last week, one of the things that we saw was that Jesus' final days do not present him as a victim of the enemy. Rather, that his enemies were an instrument used by God to achieve his very will and purposes. Like Jesus showed his sovereign knowledge, even orchestration of the events that to the outsiders might look like was his defeat. Him knowing who the betrayer would be, him knowing of his arrest, of his suffering to be killed, knowing this was all going to happen so soon, he says, I'm never going to drink from the fruit of the vine again until I do so in the kingdom of God. And Jesus knows all of them will fall away. Not because he, just because he knows they're weak. But before they were even born, it was written in Zechariah 13.7 that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But notice too in that wording, it's God speaking, he says, I will strike the shepherd. We see again how God's sovereign good purposes are taking place, that Jesus' death was not Judas or the Jewish leaders striking Jesus. God says, I will strike the shepherd. As Jesus suffered a death, bearing the wrath of God against sinful mankind upon himself in his body. And it would appear the disciples were so thrown by that prediction that they'd all fall away that they completely missed verse 28 when he says, but when I'm raised, I'll go ahead to Galilee to meet you there. Because you look through any of the Gospels, zero is the number of the disciples who expected Jesus to be raised. And you think, Jesus laid it out before them on so many occasions. But then I wondered, how often do I hear or see things in God's word and then continue to go on living as though I'd never heard it ever before? How often do we fail to hear what God has already said to us? Now, previously when Jesus says that one will betray him, all of the disciples say, is it I? Could be, is it me? But now, as Jesus says, you'll all fall away, Peter's pretty sure that Jesus has got this plain and simple wrong. Peter is not slow to speak up usually. He says, even though they all will fall away, I will not. Now, I get the impression Peter's one of, one of these guys who often would regret things that he says and probably the disciples probably regret a number of things that, that Peter says. And this could be amongst some of the worst that Peter has done. It's more than just the fact that he rebuked Jesus, saying, no, Jesus, you haven't got a clue what you're talking about. And incidentally, it's not the first time that Peter's corrected and rebuked Jesus, as we know before when Jesus outlined saying the Son of Man must suffer and die and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. But not only did he correct and rebuke Jesus, he makes a statement about his peers are around him saying, yeah, you know what? These guys, yeah, they're pretty... They they probably would all fall away. 
but not me. There's no way I would do that. What pride. He's heard from the Lord Jesus Christ that they'll all fall away and Peter's like, nah, I know better than you. There's no way I would. These, these clowns, yeah, they're soft, they would. Not me. It's kind of like sometimes when you listen to a sermon and you hear a wonderful point raised and you think, man, if only that person was here to hear that. You know, you're really good to think about how this might apply to people around you. What the best thing is we can do when we hear a sermon or we're reading the scriptures is to do what the disciples did when Jesus first put it out there. Ask the question, is it I? Does that describe me? Is this me? Is this something I need to bring before the Lord? When the Lord speaks, his children should listen. Even if it highlights our weakness. Even if it describes us in a way that we don't like. Ask, is that me? And if it is, humbly accept it. The one who is most certain that he will never fall away actually gets told by Jesus, you know what? Three times you're going to deny me. Now, if you did it once, if Jesus just said, sometime in this next week you might deny me, Peter, Peter might have said, yeah, could do, you know, I might have had a bad day, I might be under pressure. But it's not just an accidental momentary lapse when Jesus says, you're going to do this three times. You are going to deny me. Now you think with these two claims of Jesus that all are going to fall away. Peter, you are going to deny me three times. Peter by now would think, okay, you're the Lord, I'm not. I don't think I'm going to do that, but if you say it, I'll accept it. That's not the Peter we've come to know though, is it? He didn't just say something, he said something emphatically. Probably stand there, arms crossed. Jesus, you got it wrong. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. But notice, even though we pick on Peter a lot and say, oh, Peter's the old stubborn one, and they all said the same. Every single one of them was of the same position as Peter. No way. We would not deny Jesus. We wouldn't let you down in any way. We would die before we would do that. Now, I've got no doubt that in their heart, they genuinely meant it when they said it. But a person who thinks, I could never get it wrong, I could never fall, will never do anything to be on guard that they don't fall. Or to take it from the words of Paul to the Corinthians, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. All of this just happened within days. Back in chapter 13, Jesus had shared a message with them where he kept saying, be on watch, keep your guard, stay awake. Yet already within the space of a few days, they're living like they've never heard it or that could never apply to me. Now as a preacher, that kind of comforts me to think that, wow, Even when Jesus said stuff, people don't remember all of it or do all of it. 
but it also saddens me, both for myself and for others, how much we miss of what God has given for our good. Now that you drive us to our knees in prayers, God, do not let me miss any of your precious truths that you have given to us. Don't let me forget them. They're for my benefit and for your glory. Don't let my mind drift to lesser things or ever be lacking in our care to want to hear what God has to say to us. Lord, we want to humbly receive what you reveal about yourself, but we also want to humbly receive your blunt assessment of who we are and our need of you. Because as we know, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Faithfulness and sleepiness, says the man who slept four and a half hours last night. The next location is a familiar place, the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Try and say that. There are three times in Mark's Gospel where Jesus prays alone. Or when it's an important event or decision to be made. On this occasion, he takes Peter, James and John aside to explain to them the scenario, what's causing such weighty stress upon his shoulders. And he says to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus doesn't say, no, I'm having a bit of a downer today. He doesn't just say, I'm sorrowful. He says, I am very sorrowful to the point of death. This is paining me so much to use our colloquial saying, this is killing me. To this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, this is probably the darkest moment to this point. So for him to make a request, keep watch. To his three closest disciples, Peter, James and John, should be a no-brainer. Should be easy. But what was it that got Jesus so torn up? Was it just, no, I hear this whole Roman crucifixion thing's not real pleasant, not that keen on that? Jesus came to die. He's expressed his mission as that he came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. There's nothing surprising about what was coming ahead in terms of the physical death. Like we've seen him is, as he's got to a point where he's intensely he's set his face towards Jerusalem, towards that path, not avoiding it at any cost. Sure, nobody wants to be cruelly killed as an innocent man. But Jesus' own prayer highlights what taunts his soul more than anything. He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus prays, remove this cup. This cup symbolic of the wrath of God being poured out against sin, knowing that the death that he is about to die is a death where the sin of mankind will be placed upon him. And the one who is the perfect son of God, who has had eternal fellowship with the Father, will in his body on that cross bear the full wrath of God's wrath against sin upon himself. But he prays, not this is the be all end all, 
It's like, this is what I want. But I have a want that's greater than that. Not my will be done. Your will be done. No matter how hard it is, no matter how much burdensome it is, Jesus says, don't give me what is most convenient or pleasant to me. Give me your will. You probably won't find a better example of sincere, faithful obedience in prayer than that. To be able to pray, God, even if your will is the thing I detest most, if it is your will, that's what I want. J.C. Ryle, the, the 19th century Anglican bishop, wrote, speaking of this passage in this way, he says, to take patiently whatever God sends, to like nothing but what he likes, to wish nothing but what God approves, to prefer pain if it pleases God to send it, to ease if God does not think fit to bestow it, to lie passive under God's hand and to know no will but his. This is the highest standard at which we can aim and of this our Lord's conduct in Gethsemane is the perfect pattern. And in the middle of this traumatic moment for Jesus, his three closest disciples, he's called to go keep watch. They fall asleep. Now, they might have been tired. It's been a long night. They've just had Passover. They've had a lot of food. They've had the wine. But this isn't just a once-off accidentally. I just dropped off. Sorry, Jesus. These guys who said, no, we won't fall away. Three times. They can't stay awake. They fall asleep. Despite Jesus repeatedly saying, keep watch, stay awake. To think they say, we'd die before you let you down in any way. And Jesus has to say, you can't even stay awake for an hour. Don't tell me that you can die for me. And in the middle of the back and forward between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. They can't say, Oh, no, I'm just too tired. I've eaten all this stuff. The spirit was willing, the flesh was weak. The spirit is always willing, the spirit will always yearn for faithfulness, and will empower us for for faithfulness. Likewise, the flesh will always encourage us towards temptation and what is the easiest and most comfortable result. In the garden, the disciples were tired from the big meal, the wine, all the things have been going on. The easiest outcome, the most desirable to the flesh outcome, was to have a kip. But the Spirit was willing to enable faithfulness to Jesus then and now. Kingdom and isolation. If the disciples were uncertain who was going to be the betrayer, it becomes pretty clear at this point in time. Judas leads the armed guards with their swords and their clubs. And it's clear they have come from the Sanhedrins. The chief priests, the scribes and the elders 
The very same group back in chapter 14, verse 1, who've publicly said they wanted Jesus dead. But as Judas and the crowds approach, there are two things that were offensive. Firstly, that Judas would use an expression such as a kiss, one that would normally be an expression of love as the means to which to inflict the punishment upon Jesus. And then secondly, the weapons which they came with are the way in which they would come towards a criminal to arrest them. Yet at no stage had Jesus presented himself as a violent revolutionary. Yes, he's spoken of his kingdom, but even as he said before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this earth. If it was, my disciples would be taking up swords. I'll even know one of them did to whip an ear off. He got that sorted out. But once more, even this minor detail of them coming as they would towards a criminal is to fulfil that which was written. As the suffering servant was portrayed in Isaiah 53.12, one of the things that was said of him is that he would be numbered among the transgressors. And just like he had spoken, all of the disciples fell away. We pick on Peter, but every single one of the disciples says, I would die before I would fall away from Jesus. In the garden, we've got Peter, James and John all let Jesus down, falling asleep, despite the constant reminder, stay awake, keep watch. And then at his arrest, every single one of them fled. In our passage, we see a self-confident group of disciples. We would die before there be any signs of weakness in our obedience to you, in our faithfulness to Jesus. But when they're put under pressure, every single one of them displayed significant weakness. Jesus chose them to be the apostles. And he did so knowing their every weakness, knowing every failure that they would have. We should take comfort. We who are weak, and we know we are weak, and if you don't know you're weak, you are weak. He didn't cast them away because of their weakness. He didn't say, well, if you guys can't stick with me to the end, you're out. When he said, you'll all fall away, he also says, but when I'm raised, I'll gather with you again in Galilee. I will restore you. This is our merciful and compassionate high priest who knows our every weakness. And we would do well to be gracious and compassionate and patient with the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters around us. Or maybe you are the person whom you're most harsh with, with your own weaknesses. Every Christian has a struggle between what the flesh wants and what the spirit wants. The way that Paul describes it in Galatians 5 is to say, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. 
For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Paul says, this spirit will keep you from doing what the flesh wants. But also the other way around, the flesh will keep you from doing what the spirit wants. The flesh is weak. It will always be weak. There is never a point in your Christian walk where your flesh will be anything but weak. But Jesus says the spirit is willing. There is not a single thing that God calls you to in his spirit-inspired word that the spirit is not willing to bring to your memory, to equip and enable you to carry it out. He is willing to help you see and behold wonderful things in his word that you might not miss the wonderful things that he desires to declare to you. He is willing to overcome the weakness of the flesh, even against our greatest struggles. Why? This is the one that Jesus describes as another helper using the language of another helper, exactly the same. When he says, I will be with you by my spirit, it's the very fullness of Christ by his spirit living within us, the very spirit that raised Christ from the dead. The very spirit who desires to point your your mind and your heart to Jesus in all things. Who by his death and resurrection has defeated sin once and for all, who has brought us to peace with God and has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, but who chose and used disciples who were weak and who continues to choose and use brothers and sisters in Christ like you and I despite our weaknesses, despite our failures. We're going to close just with a small reading from Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and to find grace in, and find grace to help in time of need. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are weak. Even if there be anyone in this room who thinks otherwise, we are weak. We thank you that your grace is sufficient. Your grace is perfected in weakness. Lord, may we not see our weakness as a means to put us outside of your care, but may it cause us to cling to you with everything that we've got. To save, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. To say, I can't, but you can. To say and own the fact our flesh is willing. Sorry, our flesh is weak, but your spirit is willing. Work in us, change us.
Help us to recall what you have entrusted to us and who indwells us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who want to read ahead, as I said, we're going to the end of chapter 14 next week, which is verses 53 through to 72. And we're also about to gather around uh, the Lord's table.